1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. It is late in the summer, and we are here with uh, two of our favorites and our regulars, Corey Shockey out in California. How are you doing, Corey?
0: Thank you for asking. There are wildfires in our area, and we got the warning order for evacuation from the sheriffs, but the fires are still 12 miles from my house, so I remain uh, regnant in my serene republic.
1: That is going to be a heck of a podcast when... (laughs) When you're like, it's it's across the street. I probably should leave now, but uh, I hope I I hope you I hope you stay safe. Um, in fact, my wife's brother lives in San Jose.
0: And ah, they're being very badly hit.
1: They all had to leave. They they got mm-hmm. on a plane and they flew flew out of there. It's te- it's really really terrible and.
2: In beautiful Vermont, is David Sanger? I, I, I am in beautiful Vermont. We have no wildfires here, and I have images from what Corey's saying of that scene in Failsafe, you know, where they say when, <laughs> when it goes. <laughs> but uh, you, all I can say, Corey, is you survived them a few years ago and uh, stayed together, so I, I am sure that there is like a Corey karma around you and and
0: Oh, may that hold
1: true. I I certainly hope it does. It is very, very sad that this seems to be something that happens every year. I read that two of these fires are two of the 20 worst fires ever.
0: Yeah.
1: And you would think at a certain point we would try to prioritize figuring out how not to have this kind of situation, but not yet we're sure um, not <laughs> um, so so let me let me let me start with you know our by the way ed Luce was supposed to join us and then he had a deadline rosa is all, she was visiting a kid in college and she was driving back and she offered to join in from her car but we have had bad experiences with that in the past um, in terms of the connection. Her driving is always excellent. Um, so we are here doing this. But but David, you know, I want to treat this as kind of one of these newsmaker shows because the other day, 70 former senior Republican national security officials um, laid out the reasons they would not be supporting uh, Donald Trump. Um, and one of those 70 former officials was Corey Shockey. I know I didn't mention her in my story on it. Am I about to pay the price for that? You are about to pay the price. Corey, why did David shun you? No,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because David justifiably, like the brilliant journalist he is, focused on the most defining and important people who had signed the letters uh, and not the riffraff.
1: Oh no 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 no! You are um, among the most important. You were also probably the youngest person to sign that letter. But um, by, by that, how many decades, David? Yeah,
2: <laughs> but, but but we're but, just but, speaking to how young Corey is, not to the age of the uh, sign. Right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but Corey, can you talk a little bit about the origin of the letter and 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 who's behind it?
0: Yeah. So. Um, Those of us, many of us who signed the letter uh, were signatories of one of the two uh, anti-Trump letters from the 2016 election. And this group of 70 people were people who had held senior positions in Republican administrations. Those of us who had worked in the White House, had worked for presidents in a variety of capacities, and we wanted to underscore the fact that our experience in government um, made us especially concerned about the decisions President Trump has made in the last three and a half years of his presidency. There's a bill of particulars of the top 10 reasons I subsequently also wrote a piece for the Bulwark uh, highlighting the two that were most important for me as a signatory of the letter. The first, the way the Trump administration has handled the pandemic, and second, the damage he has done to the institutions of democracy and to the structure the Constitution puts in place for us. All 70 of us committed that we are voting for Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris because we believe four more years of the Trump administration would do incurable damage to the United States. Well,
1: let's come back to that in a second. David, you wrote about it. What was your take
2: on this development? Um, Yeah, we had uh, a story on this, I think, ahead of anybody else. And it's because the organizers came to us and said, you wrote about this in uh, 2016, and would you be interested again? And of course we were, but it was a different creature this time for a couple of reasons. Uh, One of them, Corey's already mentioned, which is that in the 2016 letter, they said they wouldn't vote for Trump, but they did not affirmatively say they would vote for Hillary Clinton. Now they have done that with with Biden. I'm not quite sure where else they were supposed to go, you know, in uh, in 2016, but I thought that was interesting. Um, I thought it was interesting who didn't sign it. So missing from the list were some pretty prominent Republicans, some of whom have either said they would not vote for Donald Trump or who we suspect would not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, Colin Powell, didn't sign it, even though he spoke at the convention. Condoleezza Rice didn't sign it. Steve Hadley didn't sign it. Um, Jim Mattis, the former uh, defense secretary, did not sign it. Rex Tillerson, the former secretary of state, did not sign it. John Bolton did not sign it. Uh, H.R. McMaster did not sign it, although we know how each of them feel about Donald Trump. So effective as a letter was, and I thought that the list of 10 particulars was well composed and made a a strong argument. I was also a bit struck by the reluctance of many of the most prominent names of the Republican establishment who wouldn't do it. Now, some say they don't like group letters. I get that. Um, Some wanted to make their own splash. Some won't say a thing. Um, I spoke to one person, a friend of mine and, and Corey's, Peter Fever at Duke, who signed, actually worked on writing some of the original ones in 2016, but didn't write, didn't sign the one in 2020. And I said, so what do you make of that? And he said, well, it's not that anybody believes that everything that they warned about in 2016 didn't come to pass. It's that they actually believed, he believed, that these letters played to Trump's strength that they were fundraising off of them, he said. That they were saying, see, we told you we were um, enemies of, pardon my use of the phrase, David, the deep state. Mm -hmm. And here is the deep state uh, actually um, uh, signing a letter. So he was questioning whether they are counterproductive. So
1: that's a couple of uh, uh, light critiques or insights into that. Corey, do you have any response to what David just said?
0: A couple of responses. Uh, The first is I would encourage David and other journalists to circle back with all of the important Republicans who didn't sign the letter um, and have them explain why they didn't. Because what we were trying to do in signing the letter wasn't uh, to cut into the president's fundraising or even to, to prevent being a lightning rod for the president making his case, but we felt it's important to bear witness to the damage we believe the president's doing as a group of people who have worked at high levels in government. Um, And also uh, to, to make our voices heard, not just that we think the president's bad, and to answer David's question, as lots of Republicans who wouldn't vote for Trump in 2016, wrote in John McCain, wrote in uh, other people they would prefer. And what we are saying as this group of 70 is we don't think that's good enough. We actually think the president's such a danger to the country that it's important in a two-party system to overtly advocate for the alternative. Um, And that's why we're going further than The group
1: uh, went in 2016. Interesting. Um, It's interesting to me on several levels. One, you know, all of us are kind of in this foreign policy, national security world. We talk about it. And, uh, you know, we've all been doing this long enough that we've had conversations even with each other every four years about, is foreign policy going to be important in this election? Or why isn't foreign policy important in elections? or Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, and so now we're sort of getting into convention season, and although we saw this letter, one thing that struck me, David, in watching the Democratic convention, such as it was, was that foreign policy had nothing to do with it. It wasn't it wasn't lightly covered. I mean, it was just not. I mean, you know, there was you know there was a number of people saying you know joe biden knows what he's doing he's not going to screw up like donald trump but 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 you know in 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 a, in a universe in which foreign policy tends to get short shrift most election cycles this this seems even lighter than usual was is that
2: your reaction too yeah it was it was pretty light i mean it went to a you can trust uh that um Joe Biden will not tweet, will not make policy on the fly, will not issue pronouncements and then think about their effects, will not undercut their, the allies. Um, but it was remarkably light on substance. Now, conventions are no place to do policy, as I wrote in a, a news analysis on uh, uh on the second day of the convention, which was which the Donald only Trump room. and the Republicans seem to have taken you very seriously on They that. they they have. They, they said have. we're not even gonna have a platform. Um that's that's absolutely right. Um uh except that it did say that in education they would te- they would um like to mandate the teaching of American exceptionalism. Yeah. I'm not sure whether they meant like, you know,
0: So you know what I love so much about that? I'm so sorry to interrupt you, David, but it as a teacher, this shows how little they understand the education enterprise because every every leftist lunatic is gonna interpret American exceptionalism in a way that subverts what the Trump administration would be trying to do. And we're all smart enough to be able to do that.
2: Uh, or they would simply say, yes, American exceptionalism, 5% of the population, 25% of the COVID cases, right? Exactly. That's exceptional, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, back, to, back to the Democrats, um, I think that this was all wrapped up in a strategy of don't give Donald Trump a target of specificity. So you didn't want to have Joe Biden coming out and saying, I will resign the Iran deal or I will get us right back into the Paris Accord. Uh, they, they were trying to make it hard for him to say, see, Joe Biden will take you right back into the worst agreements that tied our hands and so forth. Um, but I actually think they went a little too light, and they needed to provide a bit more guidance Because you've had four years of Donald Trump. You know exactly what he would do. Uh, And this was the moment for Biden to say, we're not just going to be a replay of the Obama administration.
1: Yeah, although, you know, uh, Corey, I don't know if you've taken the time to read it yet. There was a Biden foreign policy article in Foreign Affairs, um, which no doubt was written by Tony Blinken and a committee and so forth. Um, but it more or less said, we're going to be a lot like the Obama administration. I mean, did did you read it?
0: I did read it when I was writing my piece for The Atlantic on the similarities between some of Biden's worst foreign policy reflexes and Trump administration policies, Um My take on why the Democratic Convention was so light on foreign policy is that uh, they actually don't have party-wide agreement on the role trade policy should play, which means they can't actually take a position on whether they're going to return to the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. Um, And they uh, actually have... No differences with Trump administration policy on writing off the Middle East or writing off Afghanistan, um, and so it's not just that they want to draw fire. It's that many of the things that that the Biden team, the good solid advisors around him, advocate doing, like rejoining the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, they fear would cost Democratic votes or. They actually can't draw a contrast with the Trump administration because some of their policies are just as bad.
1: <laughs> David, you know we've been doing this a long time, and now thanks to Zoom, I can see the little, the the, the thousands of muscles in your face twitch mm-hmm. in the way that they do as you listen to things. And so, as <laughs> That's you usually, are listening-
2: though, only when you're talking,
1: never when Corey's talking. Well, no, but I mean, yeah, no. When I'm talking, you know, I see the. The shock and outrage. But when Corey is, I see all your nuance muscles uh-huh. twitching, like as you listen to what she's saying. Do you have any slightly different
2: perspective than she just offered there? I think on this, Corey is exactly right. Uh, Yay! Um, yeah. Um, look, I, th- I, I think the Biden campaign has got to grapple a little more seriously with the fact that there was a reason that there was a rejection of Obamaism writ large in 2016. And that part of that reason were was people who simply could not abide voting for Hillary Clinton, who they're betting can abide easily voting for uh, Joe Biden. But um, the margin, uh, the polling margins they have are not that great. And it's possible that you can win. It's probably even likely you can win by simply saying we will be the anti Trumps. But I think they are just skating on the outside of saying way too little of, about what a Biden administration would look like.
1: Well, let's flip forward. Cause today, um, today the Republican convention begins, um, <laughs>
2: You're gonna be you're gonna be watching every
1: single moment, aren't you? Every oh yeah, I watched the roll call this morning. It was it, it was it was riveting. By the way, of course, Corey will be the first to point out that it's uh, opening on the 206th anniversary of the British burning down the White House,
0: and also the much longer-standing um, anniversary of Rome being sacked.
2: Corey yeah. yes. says as she looks out the window, measuring how far away the flames <laughs> are. <you know? laughs> yeah.
0: There are, however, no Visigoths coming with the wildfires. I'm pleased to say. I always have a lookout for Comanche coming near my kingdom.
1: Yeah, the Visigoths are are all in the White House, but the the Republicans That's are beginning their, their 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 convention. And the only real hint of foreign policy involvement we have is um, the announcement that the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, is going to make four minutes of pre taped remarks on Tuesday night uh, in a departure for a Secretary of State because typically Secretaries of State stay out of politics. Uh, and and I and got to start with Corey on this one because I know he, Corey is the keeper of the bright lines in <laughs> in 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 the, the the appropriate roles for people in high public office to play. And I was in just wondering Cruz, what your reaction I was. The
0: was. prim, uh, pedantic school teacher that I am, I walk around with a switch and hit everybody on the hands when they violate civil military norms or the appropriate way to think about the role of our, foreign di- our diplomats in foreign policy. And yes, I do think it's shocking and disgraceful that uh, Secretary Pompeo is uh, politicizing the Secretary of State's role. I think it's a terrible precedent. For those of you who haven't read Dan Dresner's excoriation of it in the Washington Post. He says it better than I could. This this is really, um, it's a terrible choice by the Secretary of State to continue his behavior as a domestic political actor. Um, it's also, if I may suggest, a terrible thing for the Israeli-American relationship for Netanyahu and the leadership of Israel to associate themselves so closely with one domestic political party i think that's actually not in the country's best interests Israel needs strong bipartisan support from the United States not a narrowing appeal whether to evangelicals who support the president or anybody else
1: Well, we've talked about this on this podcast a number of times, David. I mean, Netanyahu dove in during the Obama administration, essentially said, I support the Republican Party. He's kind of been there the whole time. There have even been some rumors that he might, you know, appear, you know, in the Pompeo video. I don't know that I give those much credence. Um, But uh, both of Corey's critiques make sense to me. How do you feel?
2: Uh, You know, there's a... Uh, a reason this tradition was out here. And I went back to look to see what John Kerry did. And of course, he spoke in 2012 and made fun of Mitt Romney and so forth. He was a senator at the time. He hadn't yet been appointed secretary of state. Uh, as far as I could find, he didn't speak in 2016, nor did other senior cabinet members of the Obama administration, many of whom had worked with Hillary Clinton. And certainly Kerry had worked closely with Clinton. Um, I think there's a reason for this. And the reason uh, that we have this tradition is that you're supposed to be, particularly when abroad, you know, representing the American people, not a particular party and so forth. So I think it would be, I think people would be raising eyebrows enough had he been here in the United States and showing up at the convention. Um taping it from Jerusalem, where no doubt he will be talking about returning the um, uh, the embassy from Tel Aviv back to Jerusalem and so forth, uh, politicizes in a really uh, significant way an act that was supposed to be taking place in America's national interest. And maybe it was in America's national interest, but if you're trying to make that case, Using a political platform around it doesn't seem to go help build that to to my mind. Now, that said, Mike Pompeo has been a significantly more political Secretary of State than any I've seen since I arrived in Washington.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's another dimension of this with Mike Pompeo that offends me, frankly, even more than violating the norms associated with the Secretary of State. And that is that Mike Pompeo has... Um, brought religion into the job of Secretary of State more than uh, many of his predecessors, and this administration has pandered uh, to religious groups. And you know, you had the bizarre uh, tweet from the President of the United States yesterday. That, you know, it's you know it's Sunday. Uh, we want God, and uh, him 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 last week saying that he thought Joe Biden, um. Was was going to hurt God, which is really giving Joe Biden a lot of credit when you think
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: think of God as as omnipotent. But you know, whatever. Um, but 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 you know, I I think Corey, part of what you have. Mike Pompeo there is to say, hi, evangelicals, I am an evangelical, I am in the Holy Land, I am supporting our agenda. Um, and that makes it kind of doubly odious to me, but, but maybe I'm hypersensitive.
0: You may be hypersensitive, but you are exactly right on this, David. Um, and it's not just uh, the Secretary of State, it's also the Vice President, who pushes, for example, for U.S. aid that goes into Iraq to be prioritized to Iraqi Christians as opposed to prioritized to the people in Iraq who need it most. And that sends a very limiting message about America's interests in the world that I think actually doesn't represent either the diversity of our domestic religious communities, nor is it in the best interests of advancing America's national security interests in the world.
1: God, no, I, I, I think that's right. Yeah, I have, I have to be in the interests of you know fairness here. Uh, I, I think the Democrats did a little bit too much of this religious stuff last week, as well, um, in their in their convention. i have Everybody should be able to pursue their beliefs and promoting diversity and tolerance is, seems to be appropriate. Um, but there it does seem to be one of those periodic we are more we are more faithful than the other guy contests going on, David. Um what's what's your take on this subset of this?
2: Um there was some of that, although you saw President Trump falsely um say in a tweet that they had, the Democrats had um, uh, uh, dropped God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, which they didn't do in in the course of this. Um, I think that uh, in the end, and this gets back to your first question, um, the reason that you're not seeing foreign policy play a big role is that this is becoming really a, a a social litmus test election, right? I mean, you're either for focusing on fighting the disease as a way to getting back to the economy and creating jobs by um, making sure that we adhere to the best practices on global warming and uh, returning to our alliances uh, or you are doubling down on America first and uh, all that goes around it. You're going to see a lot of flag waving uh, at uh, tonight, as you did some last week. Um, but you'll see it wrapped, I think, in a sort of more overt uh, mixture of patriotism with religion than I think you probably heard from the Democrats. What strikes me is this thought that we're going to hear from Donald Trump uh, every night and that they decided, as you noted at the beginning, not to have a platform because the platform is Donald Trump, right? It's whatever comes out of his mouth. They don't want to have anything down there that could become, that could be contradicted. You know, he wrote a national security strategy or some, the National Security Council did, and then in introducing it, described something quite different from what was on paper. Under those circumstances, why would you ever write a party platform? Well, Maybe they like-
0: learned this trick when um, the Trump administration wrote a reasonably good national security strategy that the president shows no evidence of having written or supported.
2: That's right, and, and was briefed on and you'll remember that the key element of it is the rise of Russia and China as uh, the uh, the central focus of American foreign policy away from terrorism. And in the course of his description of it then and since, he has never described it that way.
1: Well, David, this must look very familiar to you because it is quite a North Korean cult of personality tactic. You know, it's just we're, we're all about supporting the God Emperor and, uh, to the extent to which uh, you know he he believes something, then then we believe it. But Corey, as you look at it, um, uh, as as somebody who's worked within the Republican Party and 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 in leadership roles on the national security side um, for for many years, how do you watch this? Is this the Republican Party? Is this the last vestige of the Trump Party? Do you do you not watch it and just hope it all goes away? I mean, how do how do you because it's so anathema to so many of the things that so many Republicans believe at this point? How, wh- wh- how do you how do you you know compartmentalize it in your brain?
0: Uh, so first of all, I encourage everyone to watch it and to make a judgment about whether what you are seeing of the Trump administration, you think is good for our country and you could vote to support it. I personally can't. Um, and that's why I was part of the group of 70 that signed the letter endorsing the Biden candidacy. So, but everyone should watch it because this is what you're voting for. And don't pretend it's not racist. Don't pretend it's not divisive. Uh, if you think judges and tax breaks are good enough to justify this, then people who vote for it uh, need to own those views, as we all need to own our views and our participation in the civic life of the country. The second thing I would say is that um, you know we have an easy way to test for whether this is what the Republican Party actually is. And that test is at the ballot box in November, right? Um, elections are how we say, yes, this is who we are, or no, this is who not who we want to be. And so the outcome of the November election will determine not just whether uh, what you see at the Republican convention is who we are as Republicans. It will also illustrate whether this is who we are as a country, because Republicans alone do not make up enough of the electorate to elect anybody president. Um, and I hope people will be open to giving a hearing to those of us who have worked in Republican administrations on national security and signed that letter.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and and I would add that, uh, the election is not just about who's president. It's also got implications in the House and the Senate, which have foreign policy and national security implications, as well as domestic uh, strength and tranquility implications. Uh, with just a couple minutes to go here, let's go to the last word with you, David, and say, as you look at this, as somebody who's seen a lot of, um, lot of conventions over the years, it what, what what would you advise a listener to
2: look for? Well, one thing I would look for when we do get to a to a discussion of foreign policy, to the degree there is, and I think that'll be mostly Tuesday night when uh, Secretary Pompeo speaks, is compare their description of what they have done to America's standing in the world to say the description you would hear on deep state radio, or you would hear from- the last word, the last word in all things. Right, or that you would hear uh, reading the critique that Corey helped draft and and signed. Uh, When you look around the world, um, the prediction that the Iranians would change their behavior once full-on sanctions were placed in doesn't seem to have come to pass. The diplomacy with Kim Jong-un, who you mentioned before, which I supported, I thought it was a good idea to go talk directly to Kim Jong-un since we've been trying the alternative routes for 35 years and it got us no place, uh, have led to a significant expansion, maybe even a 50% expansion, depending on what you think the base was, in the um, size of uh, the nuclear stockpile that can be turned into weapons. And perhaps in the number of weapons themselves. Um, the departure that the president promised from the Middle East and the deal that was signed with Afghanistan does not look to me like it has done more uh, in the region other than just speed our withdrawal from it. Um, the relationship with China is more poisonous than ever And our inability to push back at the Russians, in part because of the president not wanting to remind people of what happened in 2016, and perhaps for other strange reasons of why he is so deferential to Putin, has meant that it's been a pretty good four years for Vladimir Putin. That is not the description I think you are likely to hear in the next two days. You're going to hear America is back, America is respected again so forth and so on. Um, it's going to be an interesting reality show uh, that the president's putting on here because I suspect that many of us will think that it is somewhat distanced from reality.
1: <laughs> Said in that gentle New York Times-in uh, way of, of, of framing it, and hopefully all of you out there Listeners. So to
0: f- may I offer a drinking game for um, deep state radio nerds, my favorite nerds in the world, and nerds being my favorite category of people in the world?
1: I'm sure they would be delight they'd be delighted every if
0: every deep state radio nerd has to buy me a drink if the Republican National Convention features any of the pardoned war criminals that the Trump administration has disgraced us by uh absolving of the justice the military system imposed upon them.
1: That's true. Well, we can each nominate something before we go here. David, you can think of one, but I think everybody should also take a drink every time the words "deep state" are mentioned.
2: Um, yeah, I think th- I think that would be a good one. I'm actually um, interested in that one pensive moment of um, uh, the uh, the convention where they get in and do a. a deep analysis of uh, Corey's book, and uh, they sort of discuss the parallels between the moment that we have right now and the moment when the Brits gave into American hegemony. Oh, I'm sure I can just imagine Trump getting up
1: there and saying, well, I dispute the Corey Shockey thesis altogether. We, we were, that you call that hegemony? We were no hegemons back then. We are going to be huge hegemons. <laughs> that's going to happen, right? I hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, maybe it's not going to happen, but everybody out there listens to deep state radio and has been grounded in these issues, whether uh, through these conversations or reading things like Corey's articles in say the Atlantic or the, 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 this letter that was penned by these 70 or signed by these 70 Um, national security specialists or David's articles or the summation David just did will be able to reach their own conclusions about what they're hearing on that stage has any grounding in reality at all. Uh, And of course we'll be back here to discuss it again later this week and next week. And each week as we go in the 10 weeks to the election, it's very close. It's going to be a very full period of time. We're going to try to do some new things to look for them Um, And to help support those things, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on member, become a member, read up on what we've got going. Corey, stay safe out there in California. Keep an eye out. Don't be too brave in the face of the fury of mother nature. Um, And
2: David, I would just not go outdoors in the evening because of the bears and (laughs) we've actually, we've been visited twice this summer uh, by the bears. And, um, you know, Corey has her own challenges that I would not diminish there because the fires are more fearsome. But uh, when the bears come around, you know, I don't discover many members of the family willing to go out and sort of take up the issue. But I have a new approach, David, which is that I'm going to get the bears their own subscription to your podcast here. And see whether we can lull them into submission. (laughs) Oh, that's a very interesting technique. Wait a
0: minute, I thought the trajectory of that story was it's how we'll keep the bears away, David.
2: Uh, That might work, but you know, a sleeping bear would work too. Um, Yeah, but what about a politically aware, um, finally, yeah, savvy? remember, Remember, we're in Vermont here. Okay, which looks like a blue state, but when I drive to the recycling center and dump, which is my next stop today, you'd be astounded how many Trump signs I pass and no Biden signs. Yeah, no, I understand. But if the bears were
1: listening to Deep State Radio, the next thing you'd see is a bear condominium of power echoing Metternich and the balance between the great powers in the
2: early part of the 19th century. Um,
1: because you you that's, might,
2: or you might see the bears gathering together to invade New York or New Hampshire. <laughs> okay.
1: That's possible. Well, we'll look for all of that, too. It's the summertime. Uh, thank you, Corey. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and um, stay healthy out there. Bye-bye.